0: Welcome to The Rock Fight, where we speak our truth, slay sacred cows, and sometimes agree to disagree. Outdoor brands are the face of our community. We all have our favorites, and the gear and apparel they make often play a key role in the adventures that define the lifestyle we lead. Now, something that is increasingly under the microscope is how those goods get made. There is a rising pressure both inside and outside the outdoor industry to make things in a more environmentally friendly way. For example, a 2021 survey commissioned by the World Wildlife Fund shows a 71% rise in popularity in searches for sustainable goods over the past five years. Searching for greener products is on the rise as consumer awareness to seek out better solutions grows. And the outdoor industry deserves some credit here. Over the past 30 years, interesting innovations have been implemented, including recycled components and the replacing of harmful chemicals without sacrificing performance for the gear and apparel that use them. But there is still a long way to go the process for making outdoor goods is largely the same as it ever was. A brand designs something new, sources the fabrics and materials it needs from third-party suppliers, and then ships that package off to a foreign factory to construct thousands of units that then get shipped to a warehouse and, fingers crossed, they all get sold and used. And without getting into the fact that they never all get sold and used, there is rarely a plan when those products reach the end of their life. Everything is still pretty much destined for a landfill, even if they were created in the most sustainable way possible. Whether it's the $3 garment from Sheehan that can be worn three times before falling apart, or it's the $200 custom cycling top you ordered from a brand like Kitspo, the ending destination is the same for both, even if the journey to get there is vastly different. The outdoor industry is a pro-environment industry that has to operate within the rules of extractive and damaging processes. Relying on successful, sometimes billion-dollar entities to suddenly decide to give it all up in the name of the natural world is unlikely, and the issues are too deep and complicated for consumers to figure it out. So what do we do? To find out, I reached out to Ken Pucker. Ken is the former COO of Timberland, and he spent the past 10 years working at what he calls the intersection of the environment and capitalism. Ken and I first met when I was also at Timberland, and he's uniquely qualified to talk about what we need to do to solve some of these problems given the role he held at a big outdoor brand and working with organizations such as Mighty Earth that help address environmental issues. I wanted to hear Ken's views on how we got to where we are, if outdoor brands are leading when it comes to fixing our problems, and what is actually being done via things like legislative action. I'm Colin Trum, this is The Rockbite, and guys, this is a big one. Today, it's a battle royale where I pick a fight with sustainability and the outdoor industry. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So, before we get to the outdoors of it all, I really want to talk about the bigger picture. You know, when you and I were working at Timberland in the early aughts, the brand was way out in front of the movement to take responsibility for its impact. You know, I remember feeling at the time, being a lowly customer service manager that, you know, we were the tip of the spear and eventually real change was going to come along because of how we were, you know, folks like us were doing things. And now here we are 20 years later and the messaging feels the same from a lot of brands. A lot of people have kind of jumped on that boat, uh, both inside and outside the outdoor industry, but not much is actually different. It seems to me in how we make and consume things. And in fact, it, it may actually be worse because we're making more stuff than ever. So I guess you know, I want to throw it to you, like, what's the right place or even the right time frame to start this conversation?
1: So my response may seem oddly specific, but I would say, in fact, 1972 is the right place to start the conversation. In 1972, a husband and wife team, Danella and Dennis Meadows, along with a number of other young uh, scientists and engineers, were Participants in a group led by a guy named Jay Forrester from MIT. Jay Forrester is the architect of a discipline called systems dynamics. And they connected with a group in Europe called the Club of Rome, started by an industrialist and entrepreneur named Ariello Pache. And he was interested in studying how it was that complex interrelated problems seemed to afflict humanity more. And more over time, and what could be done about it. And they connected via a grant from Volkswagen, ironically, that led them to use this new discipline called systems dynamics, which is relied on enhanced computing power to look at these kind of complex, interrelated problems that are nonlinear to model out what's going to happen over the next century, looking at five different variables. And the variables they looked at were population, resources, pollution, food per capita, and industrial output per capita. And they ran 12 different scenarios using this computer model, uh, leveraging systems dynamics. And their conclusion was that absent change, we were headed for a system collapse uh, prior to the year 2100. And on the basis of this modeling, They wrote a book that was called The Limits to Growth that was published in 1973. And you'd think a wonky system dynamic modeling summary in a book form wouldn't be that popular. And yet the book sold over 10 million copies. It was the second largest sales for an environmental book of all time and was translated in over 30 languages. And the conclusion that people arrived at was this was a doomsday prophecy that's not in fact what the authors were saying the authors were saying three things they said first if we don't change it all we are headed for system collapse but number two that small changes in our lifestyle and our way of living could lead to system stability number three they said if you have a problem to solve in 30 days don't start on day 29 (laughs) and here we are really on day 29 because had we heated the calls of this book and this, this thought process, you know, small, tiny changes, a half a percent a year reduction, for example, in carbon emissions would have gotten us to a place where we would have kept global warming below, well below one degree Celsius, a half a degree, I mean, a half a percent annually. And now we're at a place because of the steep increase in carbon emissions over the last 50 years that we need reductions on the order of 10% a year in carbon emissions to keep global warming below one and a half degrees Celsius. And if you want to dimensionalize that, the most ever since carbon emissions have been tracked that they've declined in a single year was about 2%. And that happened after the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. And again, during COVID. Right. So we need 5x that kind of reduction every year between now and 2030, to stay below one and a half degrees Celsius, which isn't going to happen. So here we are on day 29, and we had the chance, had we listened to science or listened to James Hansen when he testified before Congress in 1988, uh, to make the changes that would have allowed us to live within planetary boundaries. But here we are.
0: I mean, who's responsible now? I mean, how do you kind of Is it, uh, we're all in, you know, I mentioned brands, consumers, factories, you know, factories themselves. Is it, how do you, where do you even start, you know, now? I I, I guess I'm struggling to kind of even form a question, right? Because it just seems so, we're what, seven years away (laughs) from when we need to accomplish these goals. So where's the responsibility lie?
1: Well, I think um, people point to one of four Areas or sources for responsibility to address the problem, either kind of companies and brands, consumers, uh, investors, or policy. those are the four, I think, key levers. There are others, NGOs, media, et cetera. But those are the four that I think have the most opportunity for uh, leverage change. And we've tried a model for the last fifty years, as you rightly noted, that was based on The three actors together, consumers, companies, and investors to drive change. And that's really because of um, something that happened 50 years ago and then 35 years ago as well. The same year that I mentioned, 1972, was the year the first UN conference happened on the environment in Stockholm. And as an outgrowth of that conference, 15 years after it, there was a report called the Brundtland Commission report that was published that really first defined sustainable Uh, development or sustainability as kind of uh, a means of allowing commerce and development to continue while preserving resources for future generations. And that definition of sustainable development relied heavily on a belief that market-based voluntary corporate action would suffice to address our environmental and social challenges. And the theory was that four areas of corporate voluntary action would carry the day. The first was technological advancement and innovation, which we've seen over time. Mm -hmm. The second was win-win solutions, things like eco-efficiency or creating shared value, ideas that work both for profit and the planet. The third was reporting and disclosure. And the fourth was certification. And so over the last 35 years, we've tried that path where we've had uh, companies producing ever more sustainability reports. There are now 96% of the S&P or Fortune 500 actually produce a sustainability report, so much more disclosure. We've sure. seen an enormous increase in the number of certifications. We see win-win solutions being tried, things like circularity, et cetera, over and over And technology has advanced, for example, the cost of a solar panel now per megawatt hour is down more than 90% over the last really eight, nine years. And so you would think, wow, uh, things are happening on that front. In the world of investment, you have massive growth in this investment trend called ESG, or Environmental and Social Governance Investing. Uh, so you've got companies doing more, you've got investors doing more, and consumers are demanding more. And you hear about Gen Z and their willingness to pay around sustainable products. So you'd think, wow, this is working. And yet, over the same 35 years, you know, carbon emissions have essentially doubled, and they're at an all-time high. We measure carbon emissions globally at a uh, peak of a mountaintop volcano, uh, active volcano in Hawaii called Mauna Loa. That's where it's been measured over time. And we've just hit 420 parts per million. And uh, that's um, as compared to the first 800,000 years or so of tracking uh, based on ice core samples, about 275 parts per million. And we know that anything over 350 is really concerning. And those numbers continue to go up. So something's not working with this market-based Corporate voluntary action as a solution, which doesn't surprise, because the system is set up to to drive growth. And so, I think we have to look at the fourth lever, which is policy, as a way to change behavior.
0: So th- this is an outdoor-focused show. Most of the time, we're talking about silly or fun things. Um, but you know, in my open, I talk about how the gear and apparel makers of the outdoor industry, which you know, at least on the surface, is pro-environment. Uh, Because of where we like to go, do our things while while using the brands who provide us those goods, you know. But they still have to abide sort of a mostly extractive and destructive way that things get made. I mean, that's kind of almost what you're alluding to and what you were just talking about. It's still there's a lot of good things happening, but we're still seeing the numbers go in the the wrong direction. And I think has a lot with how we make things and consume things. But you know, but no matter how green your components are, there's still the process of making them, then assembling them into finished products. But if there was ever a group of companies that could improve that situation, you would think it's the outdoor industry, given the vested interest you know we have in protecting our playground. I do, when you kind of look at this kind of bigger picture, then kind of you put a spotlight on the outdoor industry. Is this an industry that's leading when it comes to doing better, how we make these things?
1: Well, I think there are examples of brands and companies within the industry that are true leaders. Uh, everyone points to Patagonia, and I think deservedly. I think... Um, Their um, focus on the environment and advocacy, and now the new kind of uh, uh, capital or governance structure that Yvonne Chouinard put in place is laudatory and noble and cool. Uh, There are others. I think uh, Houdini, which is a uh, Scandinavian brand, is doing a great job. Uh, There's a small brand in Paris focused on women in outerwear called Early Majority, which has a subscription model, which is really cool. And there is a small, cool brand in Portland, Oregon, started by Eric Ledecky, who's the former head of brand marketing for Adidas, called the Unless Collective, which is making all plant-based products, which I think is really cool. Um, there, are all the, there are others outside uh, outdoors within the fashion space, like Reformation or Allbirds, which I think are also doing uh, really good things as they try to drive towards net zero emissions. But if I lift up and answer the question, is the outdoor industry leading I'd say not really. Hmm. I think that uh, what you see is mostly the same business models from the outdoor companies, which you wrote, You rightly note is uh, extractive and um, more end-use specific categories and ever more products made from fossil fuels that don't decompose for generations, ostensibly because of performance. Um and what we've, the outdoor industry has really done is bolt on some additional business models to the base, things like recycle and resale and rental. And as a result, create an impression that a lot's going on. Right. But, but if you look at the numbers, like Patagonia, who I just lauded, uh, has a program called Warnware, which is essentially resale of their own goods, which I think is really cool and a lot of Gen Z's into. And yet, if you read Patagonia's own Musings on the topic, one where it represents less than 1% of their their total sales. Yeah. Or if you look at something like resale, you've got uh outdoor brands partnering with this group called uh, ThreadUp. And ThreadUp's cool and has an amazing reverse logistics system in place, but they're trading at one tenth their peak market cap because that model is yet to demonstrate it can make any money. That's the same as like rental and rent the runway, which took 600 million dollars from investors over a 10 year period and now trades at a market cap of about 200 million dollars. So, again, that business model, you know, business business models have to be profitable in order to endure. So I think we've got a ton of work to do in Mm -hmm. the outdoor industry. If you ask me where there is leadership, it's in what I'd call climate tech. It's in places like ag tech and batteries and renewable energy and EVs and heat pumps. Those are things that are going to fundamentally change electrification and energy usage.
0: Well, and I do want to get back to something you were talking about in your previous answer about you know legislatively. I think that's something that, you know, that's where I think we want to end up with our conversation. But, you know, you mentioned um, the outdoor industry leading, and I look at it it, even th- it's the good intentions that kind of almost rub me the wrong way because you like, know no amount of recycled fiber really ends up solving much other than kind of you know putting the uh, the stamp on it that this is quote unquote green and look we've been all sort of conditioned to spend as consumers right i mean it's all, that's a major behavior that we all have you know and now it's easier than ever i can pop my i could be on my phone right now ordering things off of amazon while you're giving me <laughs> your answers right so and in the outdoor category I mean your outdoor pursuits they start at the gear shop you know that's another conditioning you you can't go do this thing unless you have x y or z and you know brands who are profit oriented because that's what brands do and businesses do and like you know it's hard to say that that's right or wrong because that's just the system we build for ourselves but they continue to push out new products under the guise of innovation when kind of what they're really doing is just making more stuff that exists in some form i two recent examples i noticed you know loa's making trail running shoes and you know, uh, and there's no solution there. There are already trail running shoes. And Rab right now, I saw a thing over this past weekend, this is mid-February, you know, they're entering cycling apparel. And maybe their apparel kit's great, but there's a lot of cycling apparel in the world. So, you know, nothing is doing is solving a problem And they can say that it's green, but they're just kind of playing the odds and taking some sort of percentage of market share to kind of fuel revenue growth is really what they're doing. And I'm not trying to paint them as, as a villain by doing that. I mean, that's just kind of what brands and you know businesses do. But is, there, is the growth almost the real issue? Is it just sort of that, hey, we want green solutions, but we also don't want to stop buying stuff? Is that is that kind of where this is all headed towards in terms of like, how do we kind of put a halt to that?
1: Absolutely. Um, if you go back 15 years ago, the fashion industry writ large, not just outdoor industry, sold about – 50 billion garments. That's footwear and apparel. Uh, Though the industry doesn't do a great job of tracking data, it's now certainly well over 100 billion, likely 120 to 150 billion. And 75 to 80% of those end up either incinerated or in landfill. And it's because of what you mentioned. Executives aren't bad. It's just that their objectives are to grow, growth is the oxygen of capitalism, not just growth in earnings or growth in revenue, but also growth to enable people's careers to grow. And so it's a necessary kind of ingredient in capitalism. And outdoor brands, no different than a lot of fashion brands have sped things up. So the sum of more innovation or merchandising, as you described it, plus speed, you know, because of technology, Plus planned obsolescence, meaning you got to buy the new one because it's better than the old one, Um, plus cheap labor equals this kind of formula that the industry is used to grow and grow very successfully. But we live on a finite planet. And uh, if you look at the output of a group called the Global Footprint Network, they uh, publish this uh, uh, report annually that looks at how many Earths of uh, renewable inputs we're using annually? And right now we're up to using about 1.7 Earths of renewable resources a year collectively. And you say, "Wait a minute, I don't understand that. We only have one. How can we use 1.7?" And the reason is, is because we started our passbook savings account, you know, for resources with a big, <laughs> big balance. And right. so, like, if, you know, if you have a ten thousand dollars in your account and you're earning, you know, a thousand bucks a month. And spending fifteen hundred, you can do it for some time, but the game wears out at a certain point too, because you're you're dwindling down your savings, and that's what we're doing collectively. And fashion, or you know, is a big contributor to things like land use, and greenhouse gas emissions, and chemical use, and labor, and so it's going to get more and more attention as uh, these challenges become more and more acute.
0: Well, then you have the greenwashing problem, too. And I say especially in the outdoor industry where the consumers is the, the consumer is going to read the label and think, yeah, good or bad or I want that. I don't care. But if someone even an educated consumer sees, oh, recycled content or something gets pitched as, oh, this is an earth friendly garment. And that's as someone who worked in the apparel industry and the textile industry is a phrase that just drives me up a wall. Like none of this is earth friendly. You know what's earth friendly is stop making shit. Like that's what's earth friendly. (laughs) So it's a uh, that that messaging is uh, is really going to be challenging, I feel like, because it is too. It's not a hey, we made this as responsibly as possible. uh, And then when it's done, here's what you're going to do so that it's not you know sitting in a landfill for a few hundred years, which doesn't fit real well on a hang tag. But that's the message that we should all be striving towards. So I don't know if there is a solution to greenwashing. Uh, And obviously, I think even when the outdoor space, I'm sure it's better than others when you have folks like Shein in the world and people like that who are purely just how much stuff can we make and get it out there. And then whatever happens to what we don't sell, that's fine. We can just get rid of it and make more stuff. So it's a really kind of difficult place to start from.
1: So you mentioned uh, greenwashing Mm -hmm. and you also mentioned recycling, which is kind of the easiest thing for people, consumers to appreciate. Right now, fashion at large. Uh, uses about nine percent of recycled inputs. And of that nine percent, about ninety five percent of it are plastic bottles, which is a bummer because if you were to upcycle plastic bottles uh, into plastic bottles, they can be that can be done almost infinitely. If you upcycle a plastic bottle into a synthetic thread, a polyester, or something that then gets used in an outdoor garment, it only gets used one more time, typically because we don't. Upcycle garments yet right you know less than one percent of uh the uh recycled stuff in apparel is from apparel
0: and, and it's much more difficult to do too
1: very difficult to do yeah. especially with mixed fibers if you have products that have you know both natural fibers and elastane or some other fiber there's no proven recycling technology that does that now there, there's some people uh experimenting and there's some venture money going against it, but it's really, really difficult. And it's really difficult to make the math work. But you asked the question, how is it we get away from greenwashing? And the answer here is the same as I gave before, which is policy. (laughs) And, you know, it's happening. Uh, The French just passed a labeling act um, that says, for example, you can't use the word recycled unless more than 50% of the input to a garment is recycled. The Norwegian Consumer Agency has gone after Neurona and H and M for fraud in their marketing materials based on the Hig index. Um, the FTC in the US is reviewing their green guides. The UK has a green claims code that they're publishing um, that are becoming much more stringent. And so, it's going to be it's going to be harder uh, to greenwash, which we all want. And um, because consumers do want more sustainable stuff. Brands are gonna to have to figure out how to do things more legitimately. I think.
0: Yeah, I think it, it, it's been proven by consumers that that's what we want, right? I think uh, you look at organic foods. You know, I think I, I I always liked. I worked for a organic meal bar company, and you know, got to spend a lot of time not only selling in the outdoor space, but spending time in the natural food space, and then just even as a consumer, it's you know the best part of Whole Foods or a Whole Foods type store isn't necessarily everything that's in it or all their products or their company or whatever. It's the fact that when you walk in the door, you can at least, you take comfort in, hey, everything in here has been vetted to some degree, right? It's not to say, I don't have to read, I should read the ingredient labels from a nutritional point of view, but it's not, you know, this wasn't, you know, um, this meat was raised responsibly or this all came from a farm where they're worried about, you know, the the soil quality and all of those kinds of things. And I, and I know that that's, Probably, and I'm not calling that world simple, but I think it's probably simpler than the apparel world or the gear making world uh, in terms of how it's easier to stick put a sticker on a piece of fruit saying this is organic than how you do that for you know a complicated piece of apparel. But it's it's a the consumers are definitely you know proven that this is what we want. I mean, you you look at uh, I think I cite in my opening you know 71% rise in popularity of searches for sustainable goods over the past five years. You know people are are aware of this. But how they find it is the difficult thing.
1: You're right to note that organic has become uh, more popular over time. Although last year, the percentage of land that went to organic agriculture in the US actually declined. But you're right about the point that over time it has gone up. And you can see that because you find organic stuff, not just at Whole Foods, but at Walmart and, and at Costco. But organic represents less than 10%. Of US agricultural sales. And so there's definitely a segment of the population that wants this stuff and is willing to pay for it, but it's still not a plurality. And so I think we have work to do. It's the same thing with the sustainability in fashion, where you hear people say they want it, and searches have gone up, as you say. But when you think about purchase criteria in outdoor or in fashion, you know, you have things like cost and brand and color and fit and style that probably trump. Sustainable, and it's in large part because of what you said, which is even if people do want it, it's really hard to figure out what is sustainable. Is it better to buy a nylon t-shirt or a cotton t-shirt or an an organic cotton t-shirt? And the answer is, it depends. It depends. Do you care about water use, or do you compare about? Sorry, do you care about carbon emissions? Do you factor in durability and how long these things? Uh, last. I mean, there's, it gets complicated. And if you have to answer the question, which is more sustainable to a consumer, with the answers, it depends, then you're right. It's probably too complicated to expect them to do this on their own.
0: Well, and that comes back to another problem I think that the outdoor industry has. You know, it's a, it's a, most of these purchases, as you point out, are impulse items or fashion driven purchases. And a lot of outdoor brands, put it all on. This is a technical innovation and is going to help you excel in these, you know, these pursuits when, you know, what it was it? 80% of running shoes are worn casually, not for running. You know, most, most of these big, large, uh, billion dollar brands, you know, they're selling more caps, you know, trucker hats and t-shirts than they are, you know, performance garments. And even like a Gore-Tex jacket, how many of them are just a rain jacket? They're not, being used on the mountain and that's what leads to this bigger growth but they can kind of hide behind that sort of innovation and oh we're 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 a technical gear brand like well you know then there's probably a lot more you know mountaineers in the world than i thought that there were you know because i I don't believe that (laughs) you know so it's uh it kind of points out a lot of kind of chinks in the armor
1: well you know it's it's not just outdoor i mean think about autos and the number of off-road suvs sold and how many people are taking those things off-road right i mean Um, And so look, we're not going to get away from brands selling and marketing. I mean, that's the the nature of the beast. The question is, how can we either slow down the machine or make sure that the inputs uh, to the machine and the energy that's powering them are cleaner?
0: So, I guess then where does this all lead, right? Because if you're asking profitable corporations to invest in changing the infrastructure, both in how they approach the market and how things actually get made, that's a gigantic undertaking. The consumers, you know, it's a lot to ask them to know more than what informs them, than what's on the hang tag or on the the fruit or whatever. And even if the brands of the outdoor industry are aligned, and, you know, spoiler warning, they're not (laughs) to change how things get made, uh, even if they say they are. There's still plenty of other apparel and consumer products, like you mentioned, who probably don't care as much as people who like to play outside. And even the ones who really care, and then there's still the pressure on the ones in the outdoor industry to pretend like they care. The ones outside that industry, they don't have to pretend to care. They can just like, hey, we're making a a T-shirt. I hope Target buys it so we can sell a million units. So, you know, when you search for hope, (laughs) but we have seven years to go, according to the, uh, uh, the, the Council of Rome, where do you find it?
1: So I think there are solutions at hand and I think the increased imminence of climate change and you know talking to folks and finding out that you know someone's house burned down or a hurricane happened and the incidents that's unfortunately going up which is going to create ever more pressure for solutions. So there are solutions at hand. I'll give you a couple examples. The first is Maybe not noticed by a lot of folks, but there are these um, just energy transition partnerships that are being signed, which, so, for example, with Vietnam, a number of countries like the US, the EU, Japan, UK partnered to help the Vietnamese transition their grid from one that's coal based to one that's based on renewable energy. It includes a commitment of $15.5 billion, half financed by commercial banks and half by uh, backed by governments, to help these places that can't afford on their own to transition the grid. There's one, another Just Energy Transition Partnership in Indonesia, another in South Africa. These are important because when you think about our industry, you think about fashion or outdoor, most of the impact environmentally occurs Back in the supply chain at tier two or tier three, dying, right, right. finishing. and a lot of it's energy use. They're energy intensive. And if the energy comes from coal, that sucks, right? But if the energy comes from solar, we're in a much better place. And so, um because brands won't transition that production to the EU because of cost, even though the EU has um, less coal usage, if we could get these coal producing heavy coal producing countries that are, uh, big production hubs for the fashion industry. If we could green those, that's great. Now, I wish that the industry were actually a third leg of those blended finance solutions where you have commercial banks and governments. I think that the industry needs to play a role as well. I mean, I think um, we got to create consortia where big brands actually lead in helping their suppliers transition because the suppliers' margins don't allow for that on their own. A second area I think there's hope is cigarettes. And you say, okay, why? <laughs> well, think about this. Uh, when I was born, and I'm older than you, Colin, uh, so, uh, the average pack of cigarettes in the U.S. cost 25 cents.
0: It's a good deal. Good bargain right there.
1: Great deal. I um, <laughs> uh, science around um, lung cancer then, um, but now I think the average pack of cigarettes in the U.S. is something like six dollars. And you think, okay, why is that? Did cigarettes become that much more expensive to manufacture? No, it's because of taxes, Uh, you know, sin taxes. And a consumption of cigarettes or smoking of cigarettes in the U.S. over that same period of time has come down more than 75%. And so, look, that's the way economics typically works, where something becomes more expensive, people use less of it. And so why don't we use taxation as a lever and not tax labor as high but actually tax environmental damage and so what if for example there was um, uh, higher taxes on synthetics and natural fibers or higher taxes on fast fashion companies versus outdoor companies that make durable stuff why don't we use kind of what we know about economics to drive behavior because ultimately unless the fashion industry cleans up its act People are going to equate it literally with cigarettes. Remember, remember I mentioned that, you know, 80 percent of the stuff gets incinerator, ends up in landfill. Well, uh, that means methane release. And there's not as much room. No one wants a landfill in their backyard. And even African countries where a lot of the stuff ends up are saying enough already. You know, I I can't take more. And so um, because away has gone away and because these challenges are more acute, I think we have to look to different solutions because corporate voluntary action alone has not carried the day
0: is the thing that concerns you the most almost the 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 lack of time that seemed that we seem to have because if you because you you make a good point if you stand back and you do see the solutions i mean so we're, we're recording this on february 13th the super bowl was last night uh and my wife and i were both noticing that i think all but one of the ones we saw maybe there were more someone can correct me but almost every automobile ad i saw was for their electric vehicle and the law those passed. I live in Southern California. That in twenty thirty five, they're not going to be able to sell new gas driven vehicles. All those things, and then you point out all you know the you know uh, the influence of, of government. You know how we're going to change these things. It's like if we had unlimited amount of time, it feels like we're actually kind of on the right path. A little late, fifty years late, but if is that sort of the big concern? Is that like we, we're really out of time and we're going way too slow?
1: Well, three things you mentioned California. And uh, California, I think, is the fifth largest, biggest, uh, sorry. I think California is the fifth largest economy in the world, just the right. state of California. And energy efficiency in California is about fifty percent higher than the rest of the United States. And you say, "Whoa, I'm proud all of a sudden. How did that happen?" <laughs> and the reason is because of policy. You know, there's different restrictions on things like, energy production, primary energy production and refrigerators and, you know, a whole bunch of classes of goods in California, which led it to become a leader really globally. Imagine if the rest of the country emulated California, at least in terms of energy efficiency. That's one point. The second point is your point about time. Yes, you're right. There is evidence. See what I said before about solar. You could say the same thing about wind that we are on a better path. The Inflation Reduction Act, which is policy, which was passed in the U.S. last year, is an enormous boon to uh, growth of renewable energy in this country. Um, And so things will accelerate, even though we are, like you said, 50 years behind. The thing that worries me most is the combination of time, but one other thing, which is system structure, incentives, rewards. Unless you change the rules, right, we will continue to... Uh, produce, consume, and invest the way we have. And so I think we need both um, acceleration of action, emulation of
0: California, and also um, a change in the rules. Okay. I want to come back to an example about what could or should happen legislatively. Before we started recording, you mentioned something to me uh, that you're working on called the New York Fashion Act. Can you tell me what that is?
1: So the New York Fashion Act is another piece of legislation or policy that I think can help lift the floor and move the industry forward. It was uh, proposed by a woman named Maxine Bada, who started a, an organization called the New Standard Institute. She's author of a book called Unraveled, which traced the journey of a pair of jeans around the world, ultimately ending up in a landfill in Ghana, starting at a in a field in West Texas that grew cotton. Um, and the act is proposed in new york state so it's not federal but it have de facto federal uh, implications because new york's a big market and people have to sell in it and what it says is if you're a brand with revenues in excess of hundred million dollars globally and you choose to sell in the state of new york you have to do a few things first you have to perform due diligence on your factories tier one through four equivalent to what the oecd recommends two is you have to report on what your resource usage is and your uh, kind of uh, pay by factory are. So where your factories tier one through four, you have to map them all. Um, you have to p- present your percentage of recycled material use, your water use, what materials you are using, a whole bunch of disclosure requirements annually. And the third thing you have to do is you have to comply with something called science-based targets. And science-based targets is an NGO that approves companies' plans to reduce their emissions with goals for both 2030 and 2050. And they have to be reduced in keeping with science or planetary boundaries, which means reductions of on the order of four to 5% a year, independent of growth. So if you're a brand that grows 25%, you have to still reduce your emissions on average four to 5% a year. Now you say, okay, but what if you don't? If you don't, different from a lot of the voluntary stuff, there's a fine of 2% of revenue. So if you're a brand like Timberland, that's like a $35 million fine. And so you got to figure it out or not sell in New York. And the benefit of that is we don't have to rely on Stella McCartney and Patagonia and Eileen Fisher and Reformation and Albert's, these great brands to do all the work because they can't, they need the muscle of Ralph Lauren and Nike and North Face alongside. And so our hope is that this passes this legislative session, which has just kicked off, um, the Democrats are in charge of both houses of the assembly in New York and the governorship. And so there's a chance it will pass. Um, the industry is mostly lined up against it, unfortunately, with the exception of progressive brands. But uh, I'm working with Maxine to try to see to it that it does pass because I think it will ultimately assure more license to operate for the industry.
0: So when you, how do things shake out if you make a prediction? You know, what are you, are you sort of like, you know what, I'm going to be dead and gone and over to you guys to figure it out. Or are you sort of like, no, I'm optimistic. I think, I think we're going to, I think there's a real chance we're going to get to where we need to be.
1: Um, I would say I'm a hopeful realist and I can't pass this burden on to kids. I mean, that's why we do this work. Um, We actually screwed things up really, my generation, uh, because if you look, for example, at consumption or emissions, it's really over the last 50 years that we've created the majority of this problem so we're responsible for helping address it why i say hopeful realist is you're right there are a lot of good trends but the realist part of me says we're also way behind and things are becoming more acute and we don't know where tipping points are and so i i don't know uh, any better than anyone else where things will turn out all i know is that i have to commit myself to work to make it better
0: ken thanks for coming on the show to talk about such an important topic i I really appreciate you spending a few minutes with me today.
1: Well, it's great to reconnect, and I appreciate the work you're doing.
0: Thanks, man. Big thanks to my guest today, Ken Pucker. You can learn more about his efforts working at the intersection of commerce and the environment if you give him a follow on LinkedIn. And Ken also sits on the board of Mighty Earth. Check them out at MightyEarth.org. I'd like to extend an open invitation to outdoor industry brands to come on The Rock Fight and talk about their efforts to improve how we make things. And I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on the efforts or lack of efforts happening in the outdoor industry when it comes to making stuff? Send your feedback to MyRockFight at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to the show. Be sure to come back tomorrow, Wednesday, February 28th, for our weekly hot take, as well as subscribe, follow, and give the show a five-star rating wherever you're listening. The Rock Fight is a production of Rock Fight, LLC.